You're listening to the Business of Biodiversity podcast, proudly brought to you by the New South Wales Government's Saving Our Species program. I'm your host, Edgar Grester, and I'm here with environmental educator Katie Meyer. G'day, Katie. G'day, Edgars. In this day and age, people are more and more aware of pressing environmental problems like biodiversity loss and climate change and the negative impacts these have on businesses and individuals. Many organisations are on a conservation journey, so to speak, of learning how to address these big issues. So some are long-established institutions who are reinventing ways of thinking, and then others who are just starting off on their journey. But what they all have in common is using lateral thinking and just an open mind to come up with some really innovative solutions to these environmental problems. In this episode, we'll travel to Taronga Zoo to see how it's been transformed from a purely tourist-based enterprise to a conservation platform. And as part of their transformation, they've created a world-first program called Hatch, which supports environmental entrepreneurs in their conservation journey. So we will talk with one of the participants of the Hatch program later in the show. But first, let's hear from Simon Duffy, the executive director at Taronga Zoo, who has really reimagined the role of this iconic place. Zoos have been around for a long time and they've evolved over that period of time. So I started working here 26 years ago. So when I finished my university, I rang up the zoo and said, I'm available, I can volunteer, and I did. At that time, tourism was very much the focus of the zoo. And what we came to realise is that's one of our hows, it's not our why. Like, why do zoos exist? I joined the zoo executive in 2009 and sitting around the table going, you know, we're about five years away from our hundredth birthday of the organization. If we want to be around for the next hundred years, what are we and what is our why? And it became increasingly obvious that conservation was our why because we were facing these things around climate change and all the things that lead to habitat loss and biodiversity loss. And Taronga had specialist skills and knowledge that really could make a difference in this space. So we had to say, okay, well, this is a turning point for us as an organization. What are we going to do to become a zoo-based conservation organization? And one of the first things we did was change our name. So our name was the Zoological Parks Board of New South Wales. And we changed our overarching brand and name to Taronga Conservation Society Australia. So that was part of the journey. And then going through a process of working out, okay, well, what skill sets do we have and where can we make the best investments? to have the greatest impact in conservation of wildlife. By defining that the why is conservation, you've been able to help Taronga Zoo be transformed, really, from a traditional zoo to a conservation organization. I would imagine it takes a very broad vision and I suppose a unique insight to implement such a significant change. Where does your inspiration come from? I was very fortunate to grow up in a family that loved to spend time in nature. My dad particularly was from Broken Hill and that's where I was born. And just really his place to get respite and joy was out in nature and camping. And so spent a lot of time at Menindee Lakes out near Broken Hill. We then grew up in Wagga Wagga and so out fishing and camping and doing all those sorts of things. So I feel very fortunate that I grew up and really sort of had that good foundation of enjoying being in nature and then I had a mum who loves animals and I do too and so we would 
be the ones that would rescue the lamb on the side of the road and bring it home and look after it. Or if we ever came across a rabbit baby, it'd be my mum and I who'd be like, well, we can take it home and look after it. So I, I feel very fortunate that I had that childhood and I did my year 10, so in about 15, work experience at Taronga Western Plain. Just really opened my eyes to what a zoo was beyond sort of just exhibiting animals. And they had programs for cheetah breeding and the black rhinoceros breeding program. So I'd finished that week and went, that's what I want to do. But I wanted to be part of this thing. And then again, I was very fortunate at university. You're really fortunate in your life when you have people who really inspire you and challenge you. And I had an environmental education lecturer called Tony and he was that person for me. So this is back in 1995 when people were just starting to talk about those really wicked problems that the world was facing in regards to wildlife and even climate and things like that. And he brought that to us and really challenged us in a way how we were going to engage our students. And I remember that and it's inspired me on my journey. It's incredible how sometimes just one person can have such a significant impact on us. In terms of conservation of wildlife, it's not always a simple task, and it can be multifaceted, including educating and motivating people to change behaviors. Simon shares with us the importance of the design of their exhibits, and he takes us on a journey behind the scenes of one of the exhibits that really shows the inspiring actions that they are taking to create a more sustainable way forward for both wildlife and people. I get to meet a lot of people in zoos and travel around the world in my time and see other zoos. And I really, hand on heart, I think Taronga and Zoos Victoria are leading the way in zoo design that not only meets our guests' desires around seeing the animals and having a wonderful family day out, but also really gets them to think more deeply about what is the challenge we're facing in a hopeful way to look for a better, brighter, wilder future. Our African savannah that takes guests on a beautiful journey narrated from individuals that live in country who are experiencing all those challenges about what they are doing to try and have a more balanced and holistic approach to nature and it's about finding alternate income sources for women in those places so that they're not reliant on goat farming because then you get the conflict between the goats and the wildlife like zebras and who gets access to the waterhole and so finding those alternate income sources which is around this beautiful beadwork that these women now create and sell all around the world and we sell them here at the zoo and so we tell that story and we sell the beads at the end and it's such a powerful message and it's really great because people walk away with this beautiful bead which is a reminder around the problem but also the solutions that we can find. We've opened Nuridea Australia, that's our newest Australian exhibit and it's very focused on Australian wildlife, protection of habitats, the choices that people make every day around sustainable timber products and then what you can do in the future. And we're building a new amphibian and research conservation centre and that one is around climate change. And we've choreographed a beautiful journey for our guests to see these stunning reptiles and amphibians, but also think about what you can do to try and minimise and you know reduce the future impacts and impacts today of climate change. 
That's fantastic that there's such a holistic conservation focus at Taronga Zoo, from motivating people to make sustainable choices, addressing climate change issues, and really diving headfirst into addressing social issues. In addition to all of these amazing conservation efforts that you guys are doing, I'm curious about Taronga's involvement with threatened species. Could you share with us any projects or initiatives that you're currently working on in this space? I'm very proud of the fact that Taronga has released over 55,000 animals back into the wild. If you didn't know, you might think that's not that hard, but it is. It's very challenging to get the breeding right for those species, but then get the right approvals from the state government and have all the right partners together. Yeah, I can imagine. It'd be a bit like aligning all the stars. So speaking of partners, I know that Taronga works in partnership with many organizations, including the New South Wales Government Saving Our Species program. And I've heard about some of the zoo, like the breed and the release work that you mentioned for threatened species, like the Regent Honey Eater and the Plains Wanderer. Can you tell us a bit about the process and maybe any other species that you're helping? So are you releasing the animals back into habitats where they can be supported? you're monitoring them, you understand what impact you're having in that ecosystem where you are releasing those animals because there is a delicate balance there. We've built a hundred hectare sanctuary at Taronga Western Plains and it's fenced for the feral animals. And we've been breeding the greater bilby out there. And just recently we were part of releasing those bilby back on country in New South Wales and they've been extinct in New South Wales for a hundred years and so we worked with the local First Nations communities and they were there releasing those animals with us and saying our parents and our grandparents haven't seen greater bilbies on country for their lifetimes and they've now been releasing them back and so that's just one example of the work that goes into breeding up species and releasing them back into the wild. It is a lot of work, and it takes collaboration with other organizations to make it all happen. In addition to the New South Wales Government Saving Our Species program, the release and reintroduction of the Bilby Project also had the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service, the University of New South Wales Wild Deserts program, and the Australian Wildlife Conservancy all working together in this great conservation effort. Looking after the threatened species and all of the wildlife is so important, but Taronga takes it a step further to encompass the entire sustainability piece, including engaging and inspiring guests, so that conservation efforts can be really carried outside the zoo by every individual. Every decision we make, from what products we're offering, even our food and beverage, down to the design of our exhibits and our experiences for our guests, it's all based on conservation. So the exhibit, the way that they're choreographed and designed is based on a theory of behavior change to try and encourage our guests, our 2 million guests that come through our two zoos each year to think about things differently, to try and inspire their values, inspire the way they think, and then ultimately inspire the way they behave in their everyday life. We can all make a difference. We can all contribute to a better, brighter future if we all make those changes needed. What an inspiring vision and, and positive message. It really showcases what can be done to promote sustainable living. 
Now, along those lines, Katie, you spoke with another member of Taronga's team that furthers that sustainability idea and and helps individuals and businesses with their conservation goals. Yeah, so I spoke with Belinda Fairbrother, and she is the guest learning and community impact manager at Taronga. So basically, she supports individuals, groups, and businesses to take on board this message and inspire and support them in their conservation journey, both within the zoo context and beyond. We're so lucky to be able to work out how to create change, and whether that's through individual action from our guests on site, through a community change, through schools or through business. There's a lot of ways that we can really try and create that conservation change that we need. We do a lot of work in the zoo grounds, so a lot of our experiences are based on connecting people with companies that are doing the right thing or maybe need to move their sustainability journey forward. So we'll often reach out to the big sort of corporations who are leading manufacturers or retailers of products and see if we can work together to work out how we can either showcase the changes that they have made in that really positive way and support them and thank them, I suppose, for doing the right thing. One of the better known exhibits at the zoo is a fantastic example of this. The particular exhibit has a focus on sustainable palm oil and how companies can be motivated and also celebrated for creating positive change. So our experience here on site at Taronga is called Tiger Trek. Guests are able to fly off to Sumatra, see firsthand the deforestation that's been challenging the future of the Sumatran tiger. And then they sort of walk in through a village experience see the beautiful Sumatran tigers, of which there's only 400 left in the wild, and then they end up in a supermarket experience. And in that supermarket, we're able to then showcase brands like Ferrero and Mars and Cadbury's that actually use 100% certified sustainable palm oil. And our guests can then connect with those companies and say, thank you for doing the right thing to protect tigers. I think people often think of sustainability as doom and gloom and a very negative approach, but I think in some ways we can actually really celebrate the positive changes that we have made already on things like sustainable palm oil and single-use plastics and really try and create new change in the future. Yeah, that's such a great approach to really celebrate and focus on the positives instead of, like you said, solely on the challenges and the negatives. So taking that idea forward, You also work with businesses directly in terms of their impact and their sustainability. We do have a lot of sustainability partnerships, trying to work out how we can transform supply chains, how we can look at encouraging more green products to come online, how we can encourage big businesses to communicate their need to protect the environment more. And even small businesses, we do a lot of work trying to educate and help small businesses that might not be able to afford to have a full sustainability manager or do the research that's needed to move away from using single-use plastics, for example. So we provide a lot of educational toolkits and information for small businesses for free so that they can hopefully take part in some kind of sustainability action as well. That's such a great approach and a wonderful opportunity really for businesses. Along the lines of helping businesses with their sustainability, I know that Taranga has a program called Hatch that supports and promotes entrepreneurs in their conservation journey, particularly those that are sort of at the beginning of it. Could you tell us about this program and how it all came about? 
We are particularly proud of Hatch. It was a very different and new and novel program for Taronga and even for a zoo. As far as we know, it's the only accelerator program that's run out of a zoo in the world. So we're pretty proud of that innovation in itself. But it's a really good question about how it came about. So at Taronga, we had a program called Green Grants. Every year we gave away $50,000 to different community-based small organisations that were starting up. And it was a grant. So we handed over the money and off you go, have fun and, you know, good luck, which Considering the amount of expertise that we have in-house here, we got to the point where that wasn't enough for us. We really wanted to create real long-lasting change and we believe that social enterprise model and not-for-profit model is a new way of thinking about how to create some of this change so we don't have to do it all ourselves. But we have teams of conservationists and scientists and marketing experts and people in finance and legal teams that we can actually start to share some of that information. Simon acknowledges how it's really important to support and help others with their conservation ideas and innovations, as it's all about working together to be able to achieve great things. You can't work alone and you can achieve so much more through partnerships. And we also know that for a wilder, brighter, better future, we need innovation and We need people to come up with ideas and to try new things and to succeed and to maybe fail as well. And it is a program where we really think deeply about who in our network can we bring together to support these startups in their development so they have the best opportunity to succeed. And I think true leadership is about providing that opportunity and sharing your learnings with others. And so that's one of the elements that Hatch is about. And so we set off to create Hatch. So it kicked off in the year of COVID of 2020. We're up to our third cohort now. The basis of Hatch is that it's a 14-week accelerator program with a $50,000 prize at the end of it for one successful team. And they get access to about 25 or so different subject matter experts. So everything from finance to accounting to marketing, all of those that startups need. We've had a really interesting range of of applications so far, and we've had 11 teams that have gone through the first two cohorts, and we're in the middle of our third cohort at the moment. And so there's a range of sort of sustainability products and services all the way through to that biodiversity-focused products. In this year's cohort, there's a company called Habitat Pods. So Alex is looking at a shelter to put out after extreme events like bushfires to really look at how that could help regenerate the land, but in the sense of protecting wildlife from predators. So in that time when they need the most help, can this habitat pod provide shelter and food and everything else for them in that way? In the cohorts we've had previously, we've had Camille from Xylo Systems, and she has an amazing platform that uses AI technology to try and map and plan out threatened species conservation programs across a whole range of species. So we're really hoping to see that over the next couple of years with Hatch that we'll start to see more and more of those completely biodiversity-focused ideas coming through. Hearing about the Hatch program and all of these diverse conservation initiatives, it's a really good example of the business of biodiversity, which is the name of this podcast. (laughs) And I guess along the lines of these initiatives, a quick plug back to episode three of this podcast series called Biodiversity Entrepreneurs, which covered another similar business incubator program for environmental entrepreneurs. And I encourage you to have a listen to that. But back to Taronga and the Hatch program. Katie, you spoke with one of the recent participants of the program. That's right. So I chatted with Camille Goldstone-Henry, 
who Belinda previously mentioned was a participant of the Hatch program back in 2021. So Camille is now going great guns with her business, Xylo Systems, which she co-founded and is now the CEO of. So she'll tell us a little bit more about that later. But for now, she shares with us about her Hatch journey that helped to make it all happen. We entered into Hatch about a year after I officially founded and started working on Xylo Systems as an idea. Hatch was like life-changing for us as an early stage startup. We were still very much in the idea stage when we entered into Hatch. And when you are an early stage startup, you need a lot of guidance when it comes to setting up a social enterprise, but also understanding how to connect with customers to help validate your idea, understand how to manage the business, raising capital, all of the things that come with an early stage startup. What Hatch did was it helped give us access to incredible mentors and industry leaders to help us fill those early skills gaps that we had and help us bring us up to speed much faster. So working with the Hatch team and the Taronga team, obviously they've got incredible networks in the conservation and government spaces. We had direct access to all of those people to set up meetings and ask them questions to make sure that we were going to build a product and a service that was going to solve their problems and not just the problems that we needed solving. And to get that validation through the entire Hatch program meant that by the end, we could actually start working on product development and building out what the platform now is. Yeah, what a great opportunity. And I want to hear all about what Xylo Systems is. But before we get into that, could you share with us a little bit about your background and just how you ended up in both the conservation and also the tech space? Because those worlds, they don't always intersect. It's a great story and it all comes from my background. So I am a wildlife conservation scientist. So I studied Bachelor of Animal and Veterinary Bioscience at Sydney Uni and then went on to work with a not-for-profit called the Zoo and Aquarium Association, where I was their conservation manager for a few years. So I was really lucky to be able to work with endangered species here in Australia, but also around the world. In my conservation career, I've worked on Tasmanian devil, I've worked on koalas, Sumatran tigers, red pandas, turtles. So pretty much any of our little brown furry things here in Australia, I've had some sort of a role in, particularly any that required a, a captive breeding portion of its recovery. So I was very much focused on the genetic and demographic management of those critically endangered and endangered species. And it was really working as a conservation manager and in the conservation space, you're working with so many other not-for-profits, academic institutions, government departments, landholders, traditional owners. And in that work, every single person holds a significant piece of that conservation puzzle. And when I say significant piece, that means data and information on how to best save that species, what's going on with that species, and being able to direct management. In my conservation work, it would take me months to gather the right information and data so that I can make the absolute best possible decisions, most efficient and effective decisions on how to save those species that we were working on. We don't have a lot of time left to save so many of our species. We know that we're losing species at unprecedented rates around the world and faster than we ever have before in history. So we're at a critical crunch time where we need to be as efficient and effective as possible. 
And I was just driven to frustration that we couldn't work in that manner. So that was really the seed for Xylo Systems in my mind was how can we make biodiversity and conservation management much more effective, not just here in Australia, but also globally. And we can do that now using data and artificial intelligence. We've seen a lot of technological development in the last three years when it comes to data and AI. So I saw a huge opportunity to leverage those technologies to help us make much better progress in reversing the species declines that we've seen. That's an incredible story. I'm sure all of our listeners are really curious now to hear how Xylo System works. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about it? So Xylo Systems is a biodiversity tech platform that helps businesses to measure and mitigate their biodiversity impacts. So our mission at Xylo Systems is to turbocharge biodiversity regeneration globally using the power of data and AI. And we really want to give organizations and businesses the best tools to become nature positive as fast as possible. And when I talk about nature positive, that means actively regenerating ecosystems, not just halting the loss of ecosystems that we've seen. When we talk about the climate emergency and the impacts on the climate, we often leave out the critical factor that is biodiversity and biodiversity loss. Climate change and biodiversity are so linked. So we really want to help organizations, including both those that are currently working on preserving biodiversity, but also industries like mining, property development, agriculture that do have an impact on biodiversity become nature positive. These companies are just grappling with how they even start to understand how they're impacting the environment to begin with. So we're giving them the tools to do that. Any of the customers we are working with have a very forward-thinking ESG, particularly the environmental, sustainable, social governance and corporates, already starting to think about, okay, what can we do to be a leader in the sustainability space? And all of our early adopters have that mindset, which is fantastic. Oftentimes, a certain mindset, or at least forward-thinking, as Camille mentions, is crucial for early adopters and entrepreneurs to take their ideas to the next level. We asked Simon and Belinda what they think is important in the way that people think and behave to allow them to really start working towards making big changes in the environmental space. Trying to have a growth mindset, look at the horizon. We can't achieve that strategy and purpose if we stand still. We always have to be looking where we need to go to next and sometimes that involves taking risk and we won't always get it right. We encourage people to take a considered risk. If there are mistakes, learn from those and share them and that's the culture we try and nurture within the organisation with all of our people. Having a founder mindset means you can test and learn, you can try different things. You know, we, as I said, we started off with a program that was here on site and then COVID came along. So we had to pivot in that direction. So it's being agile, it's having that mindset of, you know, constantly asking questions and constantly going out and talking to people just to refine what your story is. Camille fully embodies that innovative founder mentality with a growth mindset, making her a perfect candidate and a very successful graduate of the Hatch Accelerator program. I guess that founder mindset was always slightly embedded in me because I've always been a very ambitious person, always been a highly motivated person. And, you know, they are two of the traits that you have to possess as a startup founder. But I think what really motivated me is just being 
absolutely obsessed with the problem that I was trying to solve. I am first and foremost a problem solver. When it comes to protecting wildlife and conservation, there are so many problems to be solved. And I think this space could do with a lot more founders, a lot more entrepreneurs, a lot more problem solvers, because we've got a long way to go. To increase this number of founders and problem solvers, Camille and Belinda provide some invaluable advice for other entrepreneurs or those wanting to extend their conservation journey. I always offer three pieces of advice because these three are what have guided me throughout my startup journey or what I've taken from my mentors and my network in this journey. And I mentioned this already before, the first thing is the most important thing is becoming obsessed with solving the problem, becoming obsessed with finding solutions for that problem, validating it with customers, and also having that focus on solving that problem helps you be ruthless in what to focus on in your startup and how to build your startup. The second piece of advice, and this has been a huge learning curve for me, and it's been a really tough one, is handling rejection. A mentor told me about a year ago that you have to have a spoonful of rejection every day for breakfast because that is how much rejection you come up against when you're building a startup. I get no's more than I get yeses. Getting a no doesn't mean the end of your startup. And when I say getting a no, that could be from customers, it could be from investors, it could be from mentors, it could be from your own team if you're lucky enough to have a team in a startup. But getting comfortable with that rejection makes sure that you can keep on going and then doesn't bog you down. And the third one, if you want to build a startup, you need to have that incredible network of startup operators. So the people you're eventually going to hire into your startup, investors. I have spoken to probably at least over a hundred investors here in Australia to be able to raise our capital. You need to start building that network and tapping into that network when you need it to help you grow. The old saying goes, no idea is a bad idea. And I think with where we're at right now with the conservation crisis that we currently have, no idea is a bad idea. And so we are really open to having a conversation at any point with anyone at any stage of their journey. So I suppose my first piece of advice is just put your idea in front of someone. Like you don't need a fancy pitch deck. You don't need to have an MVP. You don't need any of that. You go out there and test your idea by really talking about it with those people that might be in a similar industry or have some expertise to really try and test test it in the first instance. And then the second tip is to apply for as many things that you can possibly get a hold on. So there are pitch events every second weekend. There's different programs across all the different universities. So get out there and apply because there are so many programs that want to help people with ideas around conservation and biodiversity at the end of the day, because that hopefully will create businesses that want to see a change in the future. So I think getting out there and talking to people and putting yourself forward for different opportunities will help you go a long way. And then three, just make something, just try something out, make a website, make an app, make a product, whatever it is, just to give it a whirl. And you'll learn a lot through that process as well. Just don't let anyone say no. That's some great advice broken down into really easily digestible tips. Hopefully we'll have many more environmental entrepreneurs in the future using innovation and forward thinking to you know, tackle some of the huge conservation challenges we face. Yeah, absolutely. And also come up with some unique solutions for those problems. So that's really one of the things that all three of our guests had in common. 
just that positive attitude and belief that by working together, that we can solve many of these environmental challenges. And looking forward, they share with us their visions and hopes for the future. I don't know exactly where we'll be. I've got a good probably idea around 20 years, but I don't know 100 years. But I do hope that whoever's running the zoo or running the organisation in 100 years still maintains that Taronga is in the heart of the community and meeting the needs of the community. I strongly believe that the community is calling out for leadership around environment, around saving wildlife, around climate change, and that they're looking for people to offer a positive, hopeful solution to that and to offer them simple ways that they can live their very busy lives with all the pressures that we face. But how can we do that in a more sustainable way? I believe that the community and society is looking for that. And I think that Taronga has a really important role to play in that. My vision for Xylo Systems is to be the go-to platform for biodiversity management globally. Where I want to see biodiversity for our customers in the next three to five years is have biodiversity considerations fully embedded in all of their business operations. We want to have their employees starting to question them on their biodiversity strategies and their nature positive strategies in the way that a lot of employees now look to employers that have those net zero targets. My hope is also, I want every single person to be able to understand what their own biodiversity footprint is. So being able to track biodiversity impact along supply chains and have that go all the way down to the individual level is my hope for the biodiversity space. Our vision for Hatch is to really try and drive these social enterprise and not-for-profit businesses to become the next generation businesses that are driving change across Australia and potentially globally. The way that I see it is that there's three really focused areas around change. One is that social change around individuals taking action. One is corporates taking action and that market change, so market transformation. And then the other is obviously governments. But the sweet spot is right in the middle and you need all of those levers to be turning at any one time to really create change. All we ask is that everyone thinks about just even starting today, what's the one single thing that you could do that would help wildlife in your everyday lives? We talked a little bit about sustainable palm oil, but we work on things like single-use plastics and plastic pollution and deforestation, sustainable seafood. There's a whole range of things that you have access to be able to change today in your everyday lives through your shopping choices, through where you put your money and invest in banks or in superannuation, through to what you buy in terms of packaging and waste and how you recycle and that type of thing. So there's always something you can do and I suppose our vision is just to have that seed at the heart of every single decision that people make in their lives. This podcast has been produced by Grow Love Project with support from the New South Wales Government's Saving Our Species program. To hear more episodes, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And for more info about the Saving Our Species program, visit savingourspecies.online slash podcast. Thanks for listening.